Welcome to Series 2 of Assembly Point, a monthly podcast by the Fire Protection Association. Following a successful first series, Assembly Point provides a collective space in which industry leaders can explore the most pressing issues in fire safety and share expert information and advice. Please be aware that the views expressed by guests in this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of the FPA. We hope you enjoy this episode of Assembly Point. Hello and welcome to the Fire Protection Association's Assembly Point podcast. I'm Howard Passy, Director of Operations at the Fire Protection Association. Today I'm joined by Nick Coombe, Vice Chair of the National Fire Chiefs Council Protection Committee and their lead on building safety. Andy Frankham, Chair of the National Social Housing Fire Strategy Group. And Steve Emery, who is the Fire Officer at Oxford University. And we're looking to explore vulnerable risks, specifically looking at social housing, care homes and educational settings and the impact on evacuation strategies. Good morning, everyone. Andy, if I could start with you first. In social housing, particularly, there could be a wide range of vulnerable people with very different needs from visually and hearing impaired residents to those with mobility issues and people with mental health issues. How do you identify these different needs and assess how best to provide support? Hi, Howard. Thank you for inviting me today. And um, what a question to get started on. Um, Social housing providers have a number of ways that they can identify vulnerable individuals uh, of some of the issues that you've talked about. That that can vary across a number of different types of buildings. So, um, you know, there are providers that will be providing dedicated care and support, um, sort of extra care facilities and sheltered and supported housing where predominantly they will have staff on site that will be working with residents to identify um, vulnerability but there are other types of properties such as uh, general needs properties and uh, high-rise buildings for example um, where there will be to a lesser degree some form of assessment based on the information that our providers have. So that will vary significantly. There is lots of different guidance around this, depending on what type of building you're looking at. So for example, the for supported and sheltered, there's the specialised housing guide that National Fire Chiefs Council published, which highlights um, a person-centred fire risk assessment approach to identifying uh, risks, especially around fire safety. Uh, with individuals and you know in in sort of general needs blocks where where currently that information isn't always available so for example you know if a resident um, contacts us and identifies that they've got a disability or they've got a condition you know uh, sometimes we see residents that have you know just had an accident and they've ended up in hospital and um you know they've got a broken leg for a few weeks and then the, you know they're back back on track so we get lots of different information and we can get that through various points of contact that we have with residents you know whether that be housing officers uh, fire risk assessors you know when, when the fire risk assessors go out to blocks they will do a sample check on on doors and uh, knock on doors and speak to residents and identify um who might be at risk. So yeah, there's di- there's different ways of looking at that. And, um, you know, where we identify someone can't self-evacuate, then um, there are processes in place to, um, to try and identify how that person could get out in the event of a fire. So, um, you know, various different risk assessments and various different information 
that we obtain from very, uh, from different places really. So it's quite wide ranging, but the key is that um, whatever we do um, should be person centered so that we're thinking about the, the resin in mind when we're coming up with solutions. Yeah, it seems like you're, um, you're tapping into lots of different sources of information really to, 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 to gather the information you need. Steve, I, I suppose a similar question to you, although in this case we're, we're maybe speaking about a more transient population, but as the, the fire safety officer for Oxford University, how do you establish who are the most vulnerable people in the university setting and what would you say were your top concerns for their safety? Well, I suppose my top concern is that somebody will be left behind during an evacuation. Um, and these people might be somebody who can't respond to fire alarm or evacuate for whatever reason. Um, our university isn't typical of all universities in that we have a collegiate system. So we have over 41 colleges and halls and they provide the accommodation and give pastoral care to the students. So we only see the students when they've left the college and come to the university for their teaching and exams and things like that. But we work together very closely with all the colleges and we have an outreach program where we go out to schools. We generally know who's going to come to the university each term and we have an admission policy which um, states that we'll make reasonable adjustments uh, to help the individuals with their support and uh, their requirements. And we have a disability advisory service, uh, which also provides information and advice on disability issues. And, you know, for people with sensory or mobility impairments or long term health conditions or specific learning to difficulties or somebody on the autistic spectrum or mental health difficulties, we're pretty convinced that we capture most of these people before they arrive so that we'll know who they are. You've explained that, um, you know, that you have policies and procedures in place, but do you find circumstances where students don't necessarily disclose the disabilities they might have, which would enable you to ensure that the appropriate pastoral care or the appropriate evacuation strategies are, are put in place? Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty confident that we know most of the students that would require help. And if you look at the general population of disabled people in the working population, it's about 18%, but that's all ages. Whereas the university, we have over 3000 students each year that um, do have a disability and have declared it. And that's about 14% of our population. And we, we guesstimate that that would be about right for the number of dis disabled students in the in the student population. Sure, and I presume that the, the, the college system which you explained to us would ensure that um, in the event, as, as Andy mentioned, that somebody was to have an accident and was temporarily um, in a cast and uh, you know had difficulty walking, that that would be flagged to you through that, through that route? It certainly would, yes. Um, and we have many examples of where people have come forward um, to say, yeah, I've broken my leg, can't manage the stairs. I don't like an evac chair. What can you do for me? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Looking at you to provide the solution. Yeah, I can, I can see that, um, you know, Andy might be slightly jealous of that particular approach um, in, uh, in, in having such confidence in, in um, 
you know in the status of the population i suppose which uh, i don't think necessarily he has the uh, um, the same access to moving on a little there's been considerable controversy around the effectiveness and cost of a waking watch in multi-tenanted buildings and i'm aware of ongoing work headed by an fcc on producing guidance on this currently which i'll i'll ask you separately about nick a little later if i may but a, a question to both nick and andy if if i could ask you both um the need for implementation of a waking watch has been essential in circumstances where the nature of cladding on high-rise or high-risk premises presents a cause for concern. Recognising that it offers a solution for the building's general population, is it a good temporary solution for evacuation of vulnerable residents also? Um, Nick, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll come to you first on that one. Yeah, thanks, Howard. I think we need to be clear about the, what a waking watch is there for. So it's predominantly there to be the fire alarm because these buildings don't generally have fire alarms in, in you know, or, or mass evacuation alarms as such, you know. So they're there for that. And it should be very, very temporary. They are a very, very short term solution to that fire alarm. And I'll probably talk a little bit like that when we talk about the guidance. But NFCC are very clear that in these buildings where they've changed from stay put to simultaneous evacuation, everyone should be starting to move to evacuate because these are failed buildings. They're not, you know, they're not, they haven't been designed correctly and in some cases could have a significant fire risk as we saw in the tragic pictures of Grenfell Tower. So we, we are firmly believe that those that are vulnerable need that assistance to help them start, at least start moving or hopefully all evacuate. And, and that is a range of options. I think people get confused about peeps in the sense that they think they are you know straight away a person in a wheelchair but we all know there are loads of different vulnerabilities that people have and there can be assistance to them to make them ensure them they can hear the fire alarm start moving and start getting out of the building it doesn't always have to be a physical staffing presence but I think the real important bit with vulnerable people, I think Andy touched on this, is the person-centred approach. Let's 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 make sure we can reduce the risk of the people having fires and uh, being susceptible to fire first. You know, that's that key message I want to try and get out of this about that person-centred approach. Thanks, Nick. Andy, what are your thoughts? Yeah, thanks, Howard. Um, I completely agree with um, what Nick's just said. You know, I think I think it. It's absolutely fundamental that um, this has to be person-centred. You know, I spent a lot of my um, time managing buildings where I used to sort of deal with lots of uh, issues around mobility scooters, for example, in buildings. You know, sometimes residents would use them because they needed to, because they, you know, they couldn't get about, they had the disability or they didn't want to sort of tell everyone, but you know, others, it was more of a lifestyle choice and, you know, because they just wanted to use it, one, really. But the key was having that conversation with the resident about, you know, trying to understand what the fire safety implications were around that, you know, of ignition of, of if a scooter caught fire in a communal space and what that impact would be on, on them, not just them, but their neighbours. So um, for me, it is about it, absolutely about the person-centred approach. I think in terms of waking watch, I think you know there's there's um, been a lot of discussion about this. Some of some of it's co controversial in some areas, and you know I think we've got to 
sort of bring this back, which is uh, what NFCC are doing at the moment around guidance, about being really clear about what we expect organisations to do to manage fire safety risk in buildings um, and you know and where there are issues and it goes to simultaneous evacuation yes absolutely all those controls need to be taken uh, in the short term but when it becomes an issue where you know the cost of waking watch far outweighs the cost of any remediation or any other mitigation that could be put in place then it clearly isn't a solution so i think it's striking that balance and and ultimately it's about protecting residents thanks andy so nick you, we, we we've we've mentioned personal evacuation plans we've we've mentioned um a person-centered approach and of course we're talking about vulnerabilities of of residents in a in a vast array of different types of properties but do you think that personal emergency evacuation plan and person-centred approach is, is going to be effective, not just in the, the general needs population that, that Andy's been talking about, but also in maybe higher risk situations such as care homes and, and, and schools and universities? Yeah, I think actually they are where they can be most effective in the sense that in schools and care homes, they will know the needs of the individuals. I think, as you know, if, just to quickly talk about the residential, they'll they'll be. It's very difficult for for uh, responsible persons to know the complex needs of their their residents, especially in kind of like leaseholder blocks. You don't know who's brought them, who's subletting them. But in a school and a care home, the needs are, are known to the the staff, and there and that's the other key. There are always staff on duty that will know that and can plan uh, uh, regularly uh, to ensure that you know the um, the needs are met i think in a care home in particular it's a, you know a person's needs can change during the day depending on what their needs are and i think the care home should be you know a, a flexible around that i think that's one of the ones they can do and of course the way care homes and their progressive horizontal evacuation method you know peeps are an, an essential bit for them but again it, it goes back to this person-centered approach for them I, I still find it unbelievable in england we don't have suppression in care homes which would be one of the easiest ways of reducing that risk you know I, you know i think it's it, it, you know it's a bane of my life that we still haven't got that we've got you know had a great win with sprinklers in now 11 meters in residential blocks of flats but you've now got care homes and specialized housing that are lower rise obviously because of the needs of the people who still don't have sprinklers and we're not even catching up with you know our, our devolved assemblies who have got that it's it just seems wrong to me that we're still having the debate you know there can be no no reason why you can't have suppression in these in these places and that will um you know help the system if you look at the new grange care home fire uh, uh, recently where the fire and rescue service had to carry out over 20 rescues uh, two people sadly lost their lives you know if that had been sprinkled it might have been a different outcome but you know i think the key bit about peeps in these places you can train and prepare and plan and they should be doing that that doesn't mean in a care home you have to physically move people evacuation but you should be training your staff to be ready to evacuate anytime because they're 24 7 schools not so normally but you know schools normally regularly practice their uh, um, 
their drills. And again, even with schools, while we still have a debate about sprinklers in schools, I hope the original BB100 was meant to get against that. You know, it was meant to be you had to prove why it didn't need it, but it never worked. And now the latest draft seems to be only putting sprinklers in schools over a certain height. It, it's, you know, it's again, I, I'll go back. It really annoys me that we're not, we're still having debate about, about suppression in these types of places. You know, we, we as a society have a duty to protect our most vulnerable and I don't think we're doing that at the moment. No, absolutely. I agree with you wholeheartedly, Nick. Uh, there's a whole can of worms there to discuss, really. But, I, you know, I fully agree with you. Why are we even thinking twice about protecting schools? Why are we even thinking twice about protecting um, care homes in, in, in that way? I appreciate, you know, cost benefit and all of those sort of things need to be considered. But um, I think the thing that's disappointed me the most um, or disappointed us most maybe as an organisation has been the fact that we don't seem to be learning the lessons from Grenfell. Yes, I appreciate lots of great work is, 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 is going on to ensure that we have a, a completely different way of designing, agreeing the design, building, agreeing it's been done correctly and then occupying premises. And when I've spoken to others on this and, and even Dame Judith herself in in one particular uh, um, forum and I said why are we why are we working with building heights and why are we not working on the vulnerability as being the the, the driver for the decision making and um, the response I got back and something that has been said more recently and far more frequently has been this issue of proportionality but to me if we're looking at things proportionally then vulnerability has got to be at the top of the list of the things that we consider and if people are vulnerable then why aren't we taking steps to you know to 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 effectively progress them um, and protect them as 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 well as we know we can do nick sort of off script slightly but have you seen any examples where organizations are taking that decision or, or maybe even andy um taking that decision that regardless of what the regulation might say the client is saying hang on a minute you know, we need to protect these people. It's going to be far better for us if we do implement some form of suppression system. I think I think we've seen some good examples around the social housing sector where people are about retrofitting. You know, where they've retrofitted uh, sprinklers in uh, residential accommodation, and some pockets of success in certain areas, even in schools. I think though that we've still got this uh, attitude of unless the law says I have to, why should I? You know, and I, I think that's that culture change that we need to, you know, uh, is at the heart of all this, you know, just because it says I can doesn't mean we should, you know, that that's the bit for me that I think, and how do we change that? And I think, especially in this, uh, you know, we are a, a money orientated society and I think we're only going to feel the pressure more with, Brexit and COVID, the cost of that to the country. So I think, you know, the government are looking to squeeze, you know, to get the money back they've spent out on them things. So it's going to be even harder to get that culture change because it comes right down to the, the man in the white van or the woman in the white van who are actually doing the work. They've got their own, uh, you know, families to feed, mortgages to pay, and they want to try and, you know, cut them costs. And I think it's, it's, it's going to be so hard 
I think when Dame uh, Judith did her report about we need the culture change, I was a little bit more optimistic than I am now, unfortunately, because of what's changed in the world. Uh, uh, but there are pockets of excellence, and I don't think we sing enough about them, I think. I think we do concentrate a bit too much on the negative sometime in, in our industry. You know, we're very, you know, you see all the social media posts about, you know, terrible installations and, you know, you know, shocking uh, fire suppression uh, uh, kind of compartmentation. I don't be singing enough about the people that are, uh, and the organisations who really are trying to push that minimum standard. I think that's the bit that's been embedded in our in our industry is minimum has become the best. You know, and not not you know not you know that's the minimum, and we should always be trying to achieve. But that. Be getting minimums the best and that that can't go on it can't go on and, and we need to have that push that culture change Andy how about from your perspective yeah Howard I think um you know I, I'd agree with Nick that there's pockets of some excellence going on across the sector uh, for sure you know I see that um almost every day um when I speak to people and speak to members but I think there are providers out there that do want to go over and above and are going over and above you know we've seen the the early adopters doing trials around enhancing you know what what the process is going to look like for for everyone in the future but we've also seen other providers you know wanting to sort of go above and beyond just the you know the 18 meter ceiling you know so for example i i, I previously worked for a provider that where i wanted to include all their six story blocks in that same regime although there wouldn't be a, a regulatory requirement to do a safety case they wanted to go through that process because that constituted a significant risk for that organization and and for those residents and and the message i get back from providers all the time is that they don't want a, a, a two-state system where you know bottom line is all residents matter no matter who they are or where they live and and there's a lot of good professionals out there that want to drive that and want to deliver that but that's not consistent and so i think you know what we've got to do in terms of culture changes is that we've got to drive that the sector's got to drive that you know we've you know there are different sectors the fire safety sector the construction sector um there's lots of other people involved architects and designers and and everyone else but it's the social you know social housing is obviously my area of expertise but you know from a housing point of view we've got to drive that forward we've got to really set the bar in terms of what we'll accept and what we won't and i think as soon as we start to do that and we embed competent teams in place as a part of that solution um, and we increase the levels of competence then i think we'll be heading in the right direction for me yeah absolutely need need some leadership doesn't it and um you know it's good to it's good to dwell on those examples of where people are going above and beyond and are looking to you know as you mentioned maybe not necessarily adopt what we might perceive as a two-tier system but are just looking at vulnerability and dealing with it so steve just thinking about the the environment that you work in are you able to share and outline what evacuation strategies you have in place for supporting vulnerable people in the case of a fire in one of the university buildings and what would you say are the main challenges that you face 
in that kind of environment and are there any specific learnings that you could share yeah we we, we do quite a lot for them and, and the first thing i must say is that all our new buildings uh, are fitted with sprinklers as a matter of policy all our new buildings have non-combustible insulation and they're all built with the idea that a fire could occur and we should you know do something about it there is one thing that we don't do that seems to be commonplace and that is in terms of disabled refuges at the moment building regulations don't require a disabled refuge in flats uh, but we provide them anyway and we have instead of the voice system of communication between a refuge and the uh, and somebody down on the ground floor we have a, a call point system where we have yellow call points and what happens there is when somebody presses this yellow call point it comes up on the fire alarm panel so it's in the fire alarm protected circuits and at the fire alarm panel somebody that goes there will see that somebody's in a refuge presses the light that comes up because the light is also a button and that gives um a reassurance light in the refuge so that the person there knows somebody's going to come and uh, and help them and i thought this would have been ideal when uh, uh, hackett first uh, suggested that fire brigades ought to have a monthly update on who requires a peep in their buildings i was thinking that doesn't really help because the person that requires help might be out shopping at the time of the fire or visiting friends you you'd never have it up to date was if they had a yellow call point, they could actually say, yeah, I'm here in my flat waiting for you. Um, so I thought that was quite a, a, you know, a useful thing to do. Um, we have the university itself has postgraduate accommodation and that's sometimes families and sometimes the families have disabilities. Um, and in our postgraduate uh, accommodation, we have a system of fire wardens. So first of all, we have a an L1 fire alarm system in those blocks, so it's simultaneous evacuation. We have um, sounders with beacons in the inside the flats, and we give a 20% discount on rent to those that volunteer to be fire wardens. And then we train those fire wardens in evacuation procedures. They go knocking door to door in case of alarm. They're trained in the use of uh, fire extinguishers. So it's sort of quite a robust system. Um, it, it takes a lot of effort from the university because we've got to do the training and to, and to repeat it every term as the students um, carry on. Um, and apart from that, yeah, we have buddies for um, students that require buddies. So if they're if they're in one of our teaching buildings, they'll have a buddy with them who will accompany them to the refuge. And of course, we provide evacuation lifts in all our new buildings. That's, you know, that, that's incredibly positive to hear, um, you know, first and foremostly looking at the, the new build process and ensuring that you're doing the very best that you can. But, you know, using a real mix of different techniques and strategies to ensure safety and arrangements are relevant in each of the buildings. Um, you know, that's a, a really interesting approach to take. There's no, there's no one size fits all. It's what works best in, in, each, in each circumstance. In, in the 1990s, uh, when I was in Bath, we um, we persuaded one of the care providers there to put sprinklers in their accommodation. 
and it was a new build. They were going for sheltered accommodation and then nursing home so that people could go in through. And it was the first uh, complex that had sprinklers. We were able to provide them with much better management procedures during the fire evacuation by having the sprinklers. But we're quite proud that that, that happened on my watch. Yeah, going to make a huge difference. Yeah, well done. Nick, sorry, you were going to. Yeah, just on the same, we're not, we're not seem to be covering on this uh, podcast, but I think Steve made some really good points about the role technology can play in, in improving vulnerable people. You know, fire alarm technology has moved on uh, so much better, you know, uh, uh, you know, since, it, you know, and it's always evolving and, and things like lights outside flats if people are vulnerable. There is so much more we can do, even progressive horizontal evacuation or progressive evacuation. Fire alarms can do that now in flats. So, you know, I'm not saying get rid of stay put, but there could be a system in place where if the fire did start to spread, it would move people because the alarms are gone. There is so much more. I don't think we we use technology enough, uh, you know, to to improve the situations. And it's something again, I think we should be looking at, uh, you know, around our building regulations and that because again, they ask for the bare minimum all the time. I was just going to, to butt in there and uh, I've just uh, finished a, a project in Ireland. It was um, a research pro project into modern technology and helping landlords to manage their properties. And it was all with the idea of getting city centre properties back into use. But the technologies they were using were, was interesting. For instance, a device that looks at the stove and if any of the pans overheat, and there's nobody present, it switches the stove off. Another device looking at doors that should be fire doors and closed, uh, they're monitored, and if a particular fire door gets wedged for more than a certain uh, a number of minutes, then the landlord is notified. And some really sort of intrusive things, but there's a listening device that can listen to your appliances in the kitchen. It, it listens to people as well, but it, it ignores them. But if a tap's dripping, it'll send a signal to the landlord that a tap's dripping. Or if a fridge is not clicking on and off with its, with its thermostat, it'll notify the landlord. And it all sounds very intrusive, but it was the aim is for the landlord to have a dashboard so that they know which of their properties are having problems and then they can go and address them. Sure. Even if that was just applied to, you know, to more vulnerable residents, it would be a, a step in the right direction. And I, I think, as as Nick's saying, the use of technology can really, you know, can really improve things. We've seen, you know, the use of um, multi-sensor type detectors have a, a massive impact on the number of unwanted fire signals and, um, you know, forced call-outs for fire and rescue services. Absolutely no reason why we can't continue to apply that kind of approach. And, um, you know making better use of technology in in keeping people safe most definitely um that sort of brings us on just to to talk about um the waking watch again which we considered very briefly earlier in the support of uh, evacuation of residents in in high-rise blocks and I mentioned earlier that um, NFCC have been doing some work and uh, producing some guidance um, on this at the moment. I'm just wondering if Nick, you could share a little bit more about um, where that where that sprang from and um, and what it hopes to achieve. 
Yeah, thanks. Sure. I mean, I think first thing to say is waking watch is not a new concept. I think people think we invented it after Grenfell, but it's been around a, a long time. The, the classic example in the past was a hotel which fire alarm showed a fault and wasn't working. They provide a, a, a waking watch. You would walk the floors for a couple of hours until the fire alarm engineer came in and fixed it. And it was always that short term. So following the tragic events of Grenville, uh, local authorities were tasked to find out where that similar type of cladding was uh, on, on other high-rise buildings. And probably about a week after Grenville, we discovered the Chowcotts estate in Camden, where five blocks had to be um, decanted because of the risk there. And it was over 2,000 families uh, being um, put into temporary accommodation which was a massive workload for the local authority uh, and uh, and other uh, services and uh, it became clear that this could happen all around the country so something different had to be uh, uh, thought of uh, to avoid that but m ensuring that people were relatively safe and they could stay in their properties so that was the aim of it and so a group of fire professionals sat round in London Fire Brigade HQ to write a bit of guidance that at the time we thought would be needed for about six months until this problem would go away and uh, of course uh, developments have shown that that's not the case and here we are five years later and we're now on our fourth edition of the guidance we've just um, uh, gone out for consultation and uh, again we're learning lessons all the time uh, from what's happened and, and, and you know the the, 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 the leaseholders who are having to pay for this obviously that wasn't considered at the time because we were talking purely fire safety you know we make a thing that makes people safe we hadn't thought who, who's going to pay for this because uh, you know that's not normally a, you know a, a kind of real consideration in in, in workplaces etc because if you're running a business if you can't afford to keep people safe you shouldn't be running the business but residential is completely different and there's so many different types of residential management etc you know uh, um, I mean I've learned so much about that in in the past five years but of course the ultimate aim of the guidance is to keep people safe and to keep people in their homes so we try to improve we try to make it really clear the waking watch should be very very uh, short term you need a fire alarm in as quick as you can the government have stepped in with the fire alarm fund to help that go quicker we've talked about residents being the waking watch to, to reduce the costs uh, and even around the evacuation management trying to reduce that and we're looking even tighter at that to really try and instead ensure that baseline of safety and, and this is the bit I struggle with. I, I, one bit I said we keep trying to do the bare minimum and here I'm trying to do the bare minimum because I want to try and reduce the cost to, to people who are at no fault of their own. So it's a kind of, you know, it's, it's a real kind of gamble in that sense that, you know, I'm playing against that. But, uh, you know, we need to do that. And, and hopefully, uh, you know, we are starting to see the peak of these buildings now dropping off, getting remediated, because that's the key. Once they're remediated, then we can move away from that. But the guide, 
probably a, a month or two away from the next edition coming out because obviously with the Fire Safety Act imminently uh, and, and maybe some of the Grenfell uh, recommendations, I think we're just, we don't want to put something out that's immediately out of date. So we're just holding back on that for the moment. But, you know, uh, people like Andy on the call have contributed and, you know, it always gets called the NFCC guide and my inbox is full from leaseholders who are saying you're costing me a fortune etc etc and it is a it is a you know a, um, a sector guy but I, I do really you know appreciate this situation you know and if I could solve it with a magic wand I would but I can't what I want to do because I think the alternative is you can't stay in your homes and then you may still have a mortgage to pay and then you've got to pay for temporary accommodation because local authorities couldn't house you all so it is that that real catch-22 situation we're in but I'm hoping the next guide will be better and, and, and more uh, kind of um, succinct. I think people have interpreted it wrongly sometimes just through the way it is but I think there are people out there who have made money out of this and that's terrible and I hate that I hate being part of that you know I want to ensure that people are safe but people are not ripped off definitely. Yeah well, I, th I think, you know, exactly as you said, it's meant to be a temporary solution. And you're trying to provide guidance as to, you know, how the, uh, you know, how owners and occupiers can reduce the financial burden whilst maintaining the safety of the, um, you know, of the premises and uh, and the occupants. So, um, I think it's a, you know, incredibly worthwhile task and definitely heading in the right direction. So a, a question for, for for Steve and Andy, really. We, we, we've talked about the approach that you you take to ensuring that you you know who's vulnerable in the in the environments that you're responsible for and and clearly for for steve there's a maybe an easier and a more robust process given the nature of the premises that are, you know allows the university to have some clarity over who's there and and potentially vulnerable andy a slightly different different kettle of fish um, particularly as as even nick mentioned earlier you might have leaseholders and you've got you know, absolutely no understanding of, of, of who the occupants might be. But how, how do you handle circumstances where a vulnerability is identified and and it, and it sort of falls outside of the, the usual or it happens at a time when there is an emergency and you have to deal with it? Do you, are you able to plan for that kind of thing? And, and, and if so, how? Is it through training or, or, or really just relying on the experience and competency of those involved to, to ensure the right thing happens? Okay, thanks, Howard. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, we're always thinking about, you know, what if scenarios, you know, so as part of any sort of emergency planning that we have in place, it, you know, it's about it's thinking about that we know that some residents won't disclose disabilities or, or that they can't self-evacuate, you know, and, and so, you know, we've got all the information that we've identified earlier through the various sources but ultimately we have to plan for those things so we have to make assumptions that we might have two or three people or more you know um in a block of flats that can't get out and and ultimately you know that's where fire rescue service come in if our plans fail and we've done everything that we can but we should never get to that point we you know we should always try to plan ahead to think about those scenarios and think about how we could manage that risk but f for me that links in 
with the resident engagement work really it, it's really about you know how we how we speak to our tenants our residents how we understand you know what happens in a building and that should feed into those plans you know and and if we risk assess correctly and we've got the right plans in place and we've got good communication with residents and, and, and it is about communication you know i think sometimes we talk about resident engagement as in that we need to engage a resident in that but i think it's about having a two-way conversation really and, and rather than them being engaged in it we know some people won't ever be engaged in that process because you know they lead busy lives they just want to get on with stuff they don't want to have that conversation with landlords every second of the day because in their mind you know fire risk to them isn't even on the agenda or um it's not even considered as something that it only affects them when something happens you know like you know there's cladding on the outside of a building and and then it does become important because they're then worried about their safety so it's about how can we proactively do that to make sure that residents feel safe you know and we can do we can do lots of things around that to you know to share information to communicate with residents to make them feel part of the process but likewise you know there might be some residents that don't want to get involved in that and sometimes we have to find a way to at least give them information and know that they've received that information in the sort of in the rounded view of making sure that they're aware if nothing else and and, and then hopefully your plans are tested uh, you know this is where the safety case regime will come into play um, about how robust your building is how safe it is uh, and ultimately how, you know what's the measure of residence and, and i think for me that's key you know it's about if you were putting your own family into that block of flats are you happy to do that and if the answer is no then that's where you've got to start looking at what you're doing and and to improve on that to to, to get to that place how about from um, your perspective steve i, I suppose a mentioned it's a slightly different kettle of fish as you might say in a in a in a university environment certainly given what you've already explained to us in terms of the the robust nature and availability of information that you have you know right from the get-go but how does it how does it sit with you in those circumstances i think um there's there's a few things that we've got in our favor the first is that we've got no blocks over 11 meters um, because it's a, a planning decision across Oxford and obviously this doesn't apply to every university. Our advisory service is really keen on finding people who have hidden disabilities and in fact there's a really good YouTube clip, one on telling us about your disabilities and there's another one from Southampton University uh, about hidden disabilities and um, so it doesn't matter which university you come from there will be an advisory service there to help you in that uh, way um, and the third thing that we're really lucky in is that we have our own uh, security services and they used to be a police for, uh, service up until 2004 when the local constabulary took over um, but they are our alarm receiving centre and they have a large number of mobile patrols and they will go to a building before 
well, as soon as the alarm sounds, they'll they'll contact the building manager, and if they don't get a reply, a patrol will go. Um, and one thing we haven't sort of mentioned, which I think is is quite important, is the policy of the local fire and rescue service about responding to automatic alarms, and who's going to call them, and whether it's twenty four hours a day or whether it's um, they won't respond during the day. And currently, Oxfordshire Fire and Rescue, they will respond to automatic alarms um, between 10 in the evening and 6 in the morning. So, but it's not like that across the board. We're just fortunate. Yeah, there's a, you know, another can of worms and, a, and another podcast, really. I think if we wanted to dig into that and maybe best, uh, maybe best avoid it at the moment. But, but, but thank you. It's, um, it's good to see in the round what you're able to achieve with, uh, you know, with that sort of um, more enclosed environment, I suppose. I, th I think it's probably time to wrap things up. So just lastly a, a very big thank you from you know from me and uh, and from the fpa for you to take some time out today to chat with us it's been a, a fascinating discussion it's gone on far longer than i'd anticipated so thank you for being patient and and and, and sticking with the discussion but i think it's 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 probably a you know a function of where we are at the moment people want to learn more there is so much to take on board um, and there is so much learning that people can take from different sectors so thank you very much indeed for your for your time Thank you for listening to the FPA's Assembly Point podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. To avoid missing out on future episodes, hit the subscribe button. To listen to previous episodes of Assembly Point, or for more guidance and resources on reducing the risks of fire, please visit thefpa.co.uk.